All right, well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, what, a, what a great thing it is to gather with the saints of God in unique circumstances, in unique settings. Many of you who have been a part of our church for some time know that a couple of years ago, we, we spent 18 consecutive weeks outside uh, during the pandemic, worshiping the Lord together. The Lord was so gracious to us, was he not? Not a single Sunday did we have to deal with rain. We had beautiful days like this to enjoy as a church family, and we uh, took advantage of that. We, we had great fellowship together. We concentrated our attention on the Word of God. We worship Him in song, and uh, it was a great season of time in the life of our church. And so after we had experienced that together as a church, many of you said, hey, can we, as a, just a matter of routine, can we do that each and every summer? Can we have a few... Uh, worship services outside, and we said absolutely, Uh, and so we wanted to do that uh, today. We'll also do that again in September on the 25th as we celebrate our 11-year anniversary as a church. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. The book of Acts, as you know, is a history book, right? It's uh, a book that is not uh, prescriptive in the sense that just because things were done a certain way in the book of Acts, that that we have to do that today as a local church. The epistles were written for our edification, for our instruction. So we we rely upon the epistles for uh, what it is that God wants us to do and wants us to be as a local church. Uh, The book of Acts is a history book. It's descriptive in nature. And so it describes what happened during the early church. The church was inaugurated in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit of God raining down on those who placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And the, the, the church was birthed at that time. And as we see the early phase of the church through the eyes of Peter, then we transition to the continuation of the church through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, we come to a section of Scripture like this in Acts chapter 18, and uh, we learn of the travelings and the traversing of the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary uh, in the history of the church. And so we come to this passage this morning in Acts chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. And we find that the Apostle Paul is winding down his second missionary journey. And he sets off to return to Antioch, which is the home of his sending church. And on his way back to Antioch, he makes a short pit stop in Ephesus, and he does what he does best. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. And so when Paul, in his three missionary journeys, would go into a city, he would go to the synagogue of the Jews. And we know the history of the Apostle Paul, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, perhaps even a member of the Sanhedrin. He kept the letter of the law to a T. And then the Lord got a hold of his life, knocked him down on the road to Damascus. And he becomes a follower of Christ. He used to persecute the church, and now his mission is to build the church, to go and to tell the glories of Jesus Christ wherever he goes. And so his strategy was, when he would go into a city like Ephesus, he would go to the synagogue of the Jews, 
and he would teach the people the gospel. And I was in a few synagogues when I was in Israel, and uh, they're not as big as you would think. They're made out of stone. There's a, a sort of a, a level of seating that goes around the perimeter of the synagogue. I don't know how many people you could get in there, a hundred maybe. These are not big places, but this was the seat of Judaism. And so every day the synagogue would be opened and the rabbis would, would share from the Torah. They would read about the law that God gave to Moses. But there was always a special time in the synagogue where they would allow visiting rabbis, visiting preachers to share. And so Paul would get on the docket and he would have an opportunity to stand before these people and share of the glories of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we have here as we come to this passage of Scripture. He enters the synagogue of the Jews and he boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ And when they ask him to stay longer, he makes this statement in verse 21. He says, I will return to you again if God wills. And then he gets on a boat and he leaves for the city of Ephesus. He leaves the city of Ephesus. My grandfather used to often say uh, when you would ask him something, since they were having a birthday party at our house for one of the kids, he would say, we'll be there, the good Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. He was from the hills of Missouri, and he would repeat that phrase over and over and over again. But the idea was that, yes, I plan to be there, but I am in submission to the sovereign plan of God. So if the good Lord wills and the creek don't rise, Grandma and Grandpa will be there to celebrate with you. And so while we want to consider this scenario that Paul finds himself in here in verses 18 through 21, our our greater mission for this morning is to work to unravel the often misunderstood subject of the will of God. So I'm going to read the passage here. We'll look at it a little bit, and then I want to concentrate our attention this morning on the will of God, especially in today's world. What is God doing in today's world? Uh, What does he want to do through us and in us? And so hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. Look at verse 18 of Acts chapter 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila, and in Centuria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. So he, he, he took a temporary Nazarite vow, which meant that he wouldn't drink alcohol and he wouldn't cut his hair. And, uh, but it was a temporary vow. Uh, there were others that took uh, lifelong vows, like Samson and others. But he had taken a temporary vow, and so he got his hair cut. He got uh, shaped up a little bit in Centuria, got his hair cut. And then they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. So he used the scriptures to reason with the Jews. Now the Jews didn't believe that Messiah was the Son of God. The Jews didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, sent from God to the earth to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary in the place of all who would place their faith and trust in him. And so he was swimming upstream 
in the synagogue of the, of the Jews. And when they asked him to stay uh, uh, for a, a longer time, verse 20, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Now, I don't think there's probably anyone here that hasn't uh, contemplated the subject of decision-making in the will of God. I uh, had a lengthy conversation with a young woman who was really struggling with life's uh, difficulties and issues in her life. And she engaged me on this subject, and she, she wanted to know, how does she know what God wants her to do? How is it, Pastor Dave, that, that I know that, that God is, is telling me to do this? It was an interesting conversation. She uh, was trained in a church that was not a good church. It was not a gospel-centered church. It was not a church that preached the Bible expositorily or dug into the scriptures. It was a highly mystical church. It was a church that was all about an experience, all about feelings. And so she was taught that she is to have a special feeling from God. And when she gets that special feeling from God, then she knows it's from Him. And that's what she's supposed to do. Can you imagine living your life up and down, up and down, waiting for a hunch, waiting for a feeling from God? And this was her existence. And her life had not turned out very well. And so she wanted to know just exactly what she is to do with her life. She was taught that she's not to do anything without first having the peace of God. And so I started there with her, and I asked her, I said, what is the peace of God? And she said, well, this is a special feeling that we get from God when we're supposed to do something. You ever have a feeling? We have feelings all day long, right? Are those from God? She thought every time she got a special feeling, it was from God. And so we worked our way through the subject of decision-making and the will of God, and I think she was greatly comforted after we got done with our time together. We may have talked an hour and a half about it. And so this is what I want to share with you today. I think there are so, there is so much confusion about decision-making, and the will of God. And so that is really at the heart of what we want to consider today. And so Paul had, had just spent a year and a half in Corinth. Uh, he started the church there. He served as the inaugural pastor. While he was in Corinth, he meets this, this married couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, and they are specialists in the same trade that the Apostle Paul was a specialist in. They were, they were tent makers. And so he actually lives with them for part of his time in Corinth. And so you can imagine they became very, very close. And so as Paul leaves Corinth and heads back to his home base in Antioch, he brings along Priscilla and Aquila. And on his way back to Antioch, we have this episode here in Ephesus, and after Paul leaves Ephesus, he, re, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila back in Ephesus to minister to the people there. And it's believed they stayed there in Ephesus for several years, eventually helping Timothy, Paul's dear son in the faith, Timothy, who became the pastor at the church at Ephesus. 
And so Priscilla and Aquila were great servants of the Lord, even uprooting from their homeland to go and to serve God. So on his way back to Antioch, um, he, he uh, as I said, leaves his friends Priscilla and Aquila there. And it says in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19 that they actually met in their house. So the roots of the church at Ephesus was, was in the house of this couple uh, that were friends with the Apostle Paul, Priscilla and Aquila. So let's go back to my conversation with this young woman who was struggling with knowing what to do with her life. What do I do, Pastor Dave? What do I do? How do I go about my life? How do I make decisions as a Christian in this life? And I said, well, you're going to live a torturous life if you live a life based upon feelings and hunches and circumstances. So we need to be rooted here in God's word. And so I took her to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. And you know the verse, but if you would, just turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. This is a verse that we quote often. But I want to show you something here that I think will be helpful. Again, it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I shared uh, on this particular subject of the glory of God with our men on Thursday mornings. We meet at at three J's every other Thursday. We're off for the summer, but we'd love to have you join us in the fall. But we were dealing with some tough questions from the Bible, and one of them was, how can sinful people give glory to God? You ever think about that? How can we, as sinful people, bring any sort of glory to God? Well, we need to understand what that means and what our mission is. So when we bring glory to God, it's that we shine the light of our life on God. Uh, We, in whatever we do, we're not adding to his glory. He is holy and perfectly glorious in all of his ways. But our mission in life, as an old preacher once said, is to make God famous. To shine the light on God in everything that we do. Keeping Him in mind at the forefront of our minds as we do anything. Even the mundane things of life like eating and drinking. And so I shared with her, because she had shared with me in our conversation, she had said that uh, she doesn't do anything without first having the peace of God. And I said, is that really true? She said, absolutely, it's true. I don't do anything without having the peace of God. And I said, well, did you come and meet with me today to speak to me about these things? Did you have the peace of God before you did that? Did you have the peace of God when you got out of the bed this morning and you brushed your teeth? Did you have the peace of God when you ate breakfast? Did you have the peace of God when you got in your car and you drove over here today? And I went on and on and on and on to show her that she didn't have the peace of God at all in any of those things. And so she admitted, no, that's that's right. I, I didn't seek the peace of God on those things, only the big things of life. And then I took her to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Whether you eat or drink, you're to do it all to the glory of God. There are no little things and big things in the economy of God. Just because we're making a decision to where we're going to go to school 
or where we're going to live or who we're going to marry. Those things are to be done to the glory of God, but so are little things like eating and drinking. And so then we began to drill down (coughs) and we began to talk about the importance of understanding that in everything we're to do to the glory of God. John Piper, who would also be confused by this uh, young woman's approach, says it this way about this verse. He says, doing right for the right's sake is atheistic. Christians should do what's right for God's sake, because the Bible teaches us to do everything to the glory of God. But God is not glorified if we leave him out of account and say that doing a right deed is its own justification. Nothing is its own justification if God is left out. Christians should do what God says is right because in doing it, we enjoy more of God. And so John Piper hits on the real issue in that discussion that I had with that young girl. How do we know what is the right thing to do in life? And his answer is, we know what is right because we find it in the Word of God. And so the key here is, whatever we do, we are to do it for the glory of God. And Piper's point is that bringing glory to God is the ultimate motivation for the Christian. Whatever it is that we do or are going to do, it's to be done to the glory of God. That means even the decisions that we have to make in life are to be made for the glory of God. And so there are no insignificant things in life. All of life is to be lived to God's glory. And so using this young woman's well-intentioned theology uh, as it relates to the will of God, think about how paralyzed a person would be if indeed they had to find, find the peace of God before they did anything. You wouldn't be able to do anything. I asked her one time, I said, how long does it take you to get the peace of God? She said, well, sometimes it's instantaneous. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months. And sometimes it never comes. So you just wait and wait and wait making no decisions, sitting in a chair all day long because you don't have the peace of God. Again, a torturous way to live, and it is not God's design. And so we ask the question, is this really God's design as it relates to us knowing what he wants from us in this life? I think many people have the idea that God has this specific individual will for each of our lives, but we have to find it. He's not going to tell us what it is. We have to read the tea leaves, as it will, and it's sort of a cat and mouse game with God, almost a needle in the haystack kind of a thing. God will give you clues as to what he wants you to do, but again, you have to read the tea leaves And eventually, perhaps, you'll have this this peace feeling or or hunch that confirms what God wants you to do. I knew this well-meaning pastor who once told me something very similar. Uh, He thought he had this uh, special feeling from God about doing something. And so he he did it, and this situation went terribly awry. And he came to me and he said he must have missed God's will on this one. He must have missed God's will on 
on this one. And so I want you to think about what I'm sharing here this morning. This hits us right where we live. Decision-making and the will of God. What is our responsibility to God? Does God have an individual will for every single person that is here today that he has not told you, but that he is going to be revealing to you through special feelings, hunches, or circumstances? I don't think so. And I think we'll see that as we go through our message for this morning. Let me share with you, if you're interested in this subject, if you're interested in the subject of decision-making and the will of God, let me share with you some books that are very good uh, that you can read in more detail than what we'll be able to share this morning. Let me give those to you. If you're interested, write them down. There's a book by Is That You, Lord? by Gary Gilley. Excellent book. Uh, Decisions, Decisions by Dave Swavely, who Dave was here at one of our Grace Life getaways. Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. And another uh, book called Found God's Will by John MacArthur. And then sort of the biggest volume dealing with this subject is by a man by the name of Gary Friesen. And it's called Decision Making and the Will of God. So there are a number of great books that are out there that will help you <coughs> drill down on uh, many of the questions that you may have about this subject. I've read all of those books from cover to cover, and uh, for the most part, I agree with the author's conclusions, which is what I uh, will be sharing uh, today as it relates to decision-making and the will of God. Well, let me give you, uh, if you're taking notes today, let me give you three important things that we need to know about the will of God, okay? Three important things that we need to know about the will of God. The first thing is this. God's moral will is knowable. His sovereign will is secret. God's moral will is knowable, intentionally so, but his sovereign will is secret, intentionally so. We see these two wills of God in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, which says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Folks, there are just two wills of God described in the Bible, and here they are. That which is revealed and that which is not revealed. God's will is either secret or it's revealed. There's a revealed will of God that we're responsible to obey, which is God's word. And there is an unrevealed will of God that is secret. And we call this the sovereign will of God. And so God has this secret sovereign will. And we know Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, right? That is his sovereign secret will. God is working all things in accordance with his will. And so that's important for us to know and foundational as we begin to think about the subject of God's will. God's moral will is knowable. It's been revealed. But his sovereign will is secret. And so as we consider what Paul was saying back there in Acts chapter 18 and verse 21, he, he's submitting to and he's acknowledging the secret sovereign will of God that he does not know. 
Paul says that his plans are to one day return to them in Ephesus, but he is not sure if that will happen because that lies in the hands of his sovereign God. You see, we can only know the sovereign will of God by looking backwards. I uh, have told the story about how I made it out to Baptist Bible College as a student. As you, many of you who have been around our church know, I was on a different path. I was on a different trajectory. I was, I was uh, all ready to play baseball at Illinois State University. And uh, the week before that was to, I was to go and be on campus there in Bloomington Normal, Illinois. Uh, I was at a church camp. There was a group from Baptist Bible College that was there, and they talked to me about learning more about God's Word. And so in a day or two, uh, I was compelled in my own heart that I don't know a lot about God's Word, and I would like to know more about God's Word. And that's an option for me to choose to be able to do that. And they told me they had a baseball program, which they didn't have when I got there. So I ended up playing basketball for four years as a sort of a second sport, but I, I did. I, I, I packed up my bags. I was on an airplane to go to a place I'd never been before. I'd never been to Scranton, Pennsylvania, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, <coughs> ever before. And so I had a duffel bag. It was an Army duffel bag that had everything I owned in it. And I took it on a plane, which I'd never been on a plane before, I got on a plane, and I flew out to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I began to attend classes at Baptist Bible College. Now, all this that transpired was really quick. It really happened uh, almost in a lightning speed for me. So on a Saturday, I decide I'm going to go to Baptist Bible College. The next morning, I was on a plane to go out there. I just wanted to learn more about the Bible. I didn't have any other desire other than that. I just wanted to learn more about the Bible, more about ministry, and, and so I, I just decided that's what, that's what I want to do. And so I did. I, I, I went out there. I began to take classes. I was amazed. As the Bible unfolded before my eyes, I was amazed. I began to soak it in and study, and I, I, desi- I, I, I sort of developed this craving to know more about God and know about, more about His Word. I learned how to study his word. I learned how to preach his word. I learned all these different things over a course of four years. And so I look back on that now. I just wanted to learn more about the Bible. But God, in his secret, sovereign will, his plan for my life, I can see it now when I look back. He wanted me to learn and to grow because he wanted me to be a pastor for most of my adult days. And it was the training that I received at Baptist Bible College that did that. I, he didn't tap me on the shoulder and say, go to BBC. He didn't whisper in my ear and say, go to BBC. It was a decision that I made, hopefully with good discernment and wisdom, based upon the Word of God and my desire to know more of Him. But I look back and I say, oh, that's what you were doing. That's what you were doing in my life. Thank you for that. And so we only know the secret sovereign will of God as we look behind us to see what God was doing. 
And so we see Paul's heartbeat in his statement, and then Jesus emphasizes that we too are to surrender to the secret sovereign will of God, because you remember Jesus, what he says in his, in his prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I actually preached in the same place that Jesus preached this message. Matthew 6, 5 through 10, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what my grandfather meant. We'll be there, good Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Submitting to the secret, sovereign will of God. <clears throat> so, this is the believer's surrender to what is not revealed. The secret, sovereign will of God. And so, foundationally, as we look at this subject of God's will, there are two wills of God described in the Bible. One we can know, and the other that we can't know until we look in the rearview mirror. Secondly, the second important thing we need to know about the subject of God's will is God will hold us responsible for what we know, not for what we don't know. God will hold us responsible for what we know, not for what we don't know. John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14 and verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14 and verse 3 says, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. John 15 and verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Second John 1 and verse 6, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And this is the theme of Scripture. We are to obey what has been revealed to us. And as it relates to his will, God will only hold us responsible for what we do know, not what we don't know. That leads us to the third important thing that we need to know about God's will for our lives, and it's that God's will is always objective and never subjective. It's always objective and never subjective. I grew up in a similar type of church as this young woman who came to me with her questions about making decisions in life and the will of God. <clears throat> Some of you have heard me share my story that I call Hoops Theology. If I had a big decision to make, I wanted to know, and it, I was well-meaning well, I was well with this and good-hearted in this, just terrible theology, but I would go out in my backyard, and I would just go by myself, take my basketball, and I would say, God, if you want me to do this, I'm going to make this shot. And so I'll shoot it. If I make it, ah, thank you, Lord. That's what he wants me to do. 
If I missed, I'd say, well, and I really wanted to do it, then I would say, well, let's try it again. Let's just see if that's really what you want me to do. And so I take the shot and I make it. Well, is it a make or a miss? Which, what am I supposed to do? And so it's two out of three with God. And this is how I live my life. And so I started to grow a little bit, and then I adopted this, this again, errant theology as it relates to God's will, and it was the idea of open doors. How many times do we hear about open doors? Well, God has opened the door. Again, none of this is taught explicitly in Scripture. We're trying the best we can to try to do and to honor God with our life. All this is born out of uh, a desire to do what God wants us to do. It's just bad theology. So that was uh, my next thing that I uh, had to deal with was this open door thing. And so I would be wondering, like, what am I going to do? I was a senior in college, Bible college, and there were a number of churches that were opportunities for me. Well, which one am I supposed to go to? Well, what happens if there's five open doors? I've been contacted within the last two years by four or five prominent churches in America who have asked about my availability to come and pastor their church. These are all open doors. They're open doors. I slammed the door shut in the first two minutes of the conversation because I don't want to go to Ohio and pastor a church of 800 people. I don't want to go to Philadelphia and pastor a church of 2,000 people. I don't know those people. I love you people. This is where I want to be. But I think God has given me the desire to want to be here in Palmyra, Pennsylvania, where we live, in Anvil, Pennsylvania, where we uh, minister to shepherd and to teach and to preach to you people that I love. I think he gives us the opportunity to make decisions like that. All those things are open doors. They're all open doors. Again, a torturous way to live. If you're trying to read the tea leaves with open doors, you're going to be paralyzed just like the lady was who had to have a peace feeling before she did anything. And so again, not good theology. And so I asked the question, why is it that people, just like I did, seem to be looking everywhere for the will of God except for where it's been revealed. Let me give you a simple biblical approach to decision-making in the will of God. Ready? Follow the Bible. Follow the Bible. Using discernment and wisdom, make your decisions in life based on what we know from the Bible. Remember, we are responsible for what he has revealed, not what he has not revealed. 2 Peter 1.3 says he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness in his word. Every author that I mentioned to you earlier and dozens of other authors that have examined the word of God would tell you the same thing, that everything that God wants us to know about how we're to live our lives for him is found in his revealed moral will in the Bible you have sitting on your lap. And while there's great responsibility in that, there's also a great freedom that I want to share with you as well. If everything means everything in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3, then why are we looking for more? 
why are we expecting that God somehow will speak to us outside of his word? I want to finish up today by looking at God's specific will for our lives. God's specific will for our lives. And I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to zip through these this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 17. So Ephesians 5 and verse 17. So we're going to... uh, uncover God's specific will for our lives today. And the first is that it's God's will for our life that we be spirit-filled. Look at verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it's God's will for our life to be filled with the Spirit. And this is a command, by the way. All of the other Uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture all happen at the moment of conversion. But this is a command for us to be filled with the Spirit, to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God, saturating ourselves in His His Word. And so the first specific will for our life is that we be Spirit-filled. Secondly, that we be sexually pure. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so it's God's will for your life that you be spirit-filled, that you be sexually pure. And then number three, it's God's will for your life and mine that we submit to authority. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says in part, Submit for the Lord's sake to those in authority, for this is the will of God. Fourth, it's God's will for your life and mine that we do what is right and even be ready to suffer because of it. And, and I just have this feeling. I just have this thought, feeling, idea that the suffering part that we read about in the New Testament as it relates to Christians may be coming for us. It may be coming But it's God's will for our life that we do what is right and even be ready to suffer because of it. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, by doing what is right according to the will of God, you may have to suffer. And then fifth, it's God's will for your life and mine that we be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur wrote one of the books that I gave you earlier, and it's called Found God's Will. And in there he says this. He goes, if we are doing all these things, if we are filled with the Spirit, if we are abstaining from sexual immorality, if we're living a life of submission to authority, if we're doing what is right and being willing to suffer for it, and being thankful in all things, then God gives us the freedom to make decisions in life. He gives us the freedom to make decisions in life to His glory. And as I said earlier, there's a great freedom in that, but there is also great responsibility. 
And so, in summary, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that we're to wonder if God has spoken. His commands are authoritative. His will for us is always objective. It's never subjective. His word is all-sufficient. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 speaks of the absolute adequateness of the Bible. And Psalm 19 that John read for us this morning tells us that Scripture is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is true. And so here it is in a nutshell. So if you haven't been turning along with me, turn to this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And with this we'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what does this look like? What does all of this look like? Here's a perfect example. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. Paul's teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He says in verse 39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. In other words, she's bound to the marriage as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married. What does it say? What does it say? To whom she wishes only in the Lord. But, but, she's free to marry in accordance with God's revealed will, which is that believers are not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And so she is free to marry whomever she wishes as long as he's a Christian, only in the Lord. And so we can make decision-making and the will of God as complicated as you want to try to make it, but it's really pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. All we have are two wills of God in the Bible. We have that which is revealed and that which is not revealed. We're accountable to that which is revealed. We're not accountable to that which is not revealed. But we can see God's sovereign secret plan when we turn around and look. I went on a, I went on a uh, youth group trip. I was a youth pastor out of Bible college. And uh, me and a friend of mine decided that we're going to take our youth groups to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Okay, So we talked about this. We planned this trip for a year. He's in Chicago. I'm down in St. Louis. I don't know anything about what he's doing there, only that he's a lifelong friend. He doesn't know anything about what I'm doing down in the St. Louis, Missouri area, except for that I'm a lifelong friend. And we decide we're going to come up to Chicago, we're going to drive vans, and we're going to go up to the Upper Peninsula Mission. Well, guess what? This is where I met Kathy. This is where I met Kathy. And so I think... We planned this trip to take our youth groups to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for this wonderful trip. We, we're at a camp called Camp Gitchagumi. Everybody, anybody hear of it? Camp Gitchagumi. I never forget that name. This is where I met my wife. This is where I met Kathy. And so God is working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. But he didn't tell me about it on the front end. Hey, pack up your youth group, get in the van, go up and meet the people in Chicago, and go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I have a special gift for you. No. We decided we wanted to minister to our kids. We wanted to take them a place that they'd never been before. And so we go and we do that, and then I can look back and go, 
That's what he was doing. He didn't reveal it to me. I wasn't responsible for what he hasn't revealed. Only what he has revealed. But I saw what he did. God is working all things in accordance with his will. And you know, you know the story about purchasing this facility. Our elders met together and we put all of our pennies in a jar and we said, you know, we're going to go all in here on a bid for this facility, open auction. One of our elders says, our, all of our pennies together was like $800,000. And one of our elders says, how about we bid $828,000? Romans 8.28. So God is working all things in accordance in his sovereign will for our good and for his glory. And you know what? The Lord was gracious. We thought there'd be a hundred bidders. There were two. We had the highest bid by about fifty to $60,000. And God has given us this beautiful facility to use for his honor and glory. Let's not make the will of God any harder than it is. God has given us his word. Let's be students of his word. Let's dig into his word. And with discernment and wisdom, God has given us the freedom to make choices in this life that honors him. And I'm so glad that he has. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what has been revealed. Thank you that we haven't even absorbed all that's been revealed. And here we are worrying about all that hasn't been revealed. May we be students of your word, studying your word, digging into your word, knowing more about what you want from us in this life. And may we truly believe what you said in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word. Why do we keep looking in other places? Thank you for the promise that you're working all things in accordance with the counsel of your will. We thank you and we praise you this morning. Thank you for such a great crowd. We pray for our, our, our picnic time to follow. We thank you that you've allowed us to have a beautiful day to fellowship and to be together as your people. We thank you for our church. We pray that you would bless the food to our bodies as we partake of it uh, even in just a few moments. And so we're thankful for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.